Memorial Day weekend travel may not be accompanied by the usual jump in gas prices this year. All in all, uh, it's going to be a much more affordable summer filling your tank. Hear more about the summer fuel outlook just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon. I'm Colin Shope. Jody Holtz has the day off. Coming up, WCBU's Joe Deacon talks with a petroleum analyst about what you need to know about gas prices heading into Memorial Day weekend. And what an expected U.S. Supreme Court ruling eliminating the consideration of race in college admissions could mean for legacy applicants. We'll still give this birthright advantage to people? That just seems to me an impossible position. Plus, on this week's episode of Out and About, Dr. May Gilliland-Wright of Arts Partners of Central Illinois talks with actress Michelle Watson and choreographer Jennifer Morris about Cornstalk Theater's upcoming production of Sister Act. Those stories just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Support for WCBU and WCBU.org comes from the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. Flying PIA supports the local economy and is the local option to travel for business or pleasure. Trips begin and end at Peoria International Airport. Details at flypia.com. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope, filling in for Jody Holtz. The arrival of Memorial Day weekend generally signals the start of summer and an increase in vacation travel. Often, the holiday is also accompanied by a spike in gas prices. But fuel market analyst Patrick DeHaan says the average cost per gallon has been holding relatively steady and is more than a dollar lower than this time last year. The Gas Buddy and AAA websites show the Peoria market with a per gallon average cost between $360 and $370 over the past few weeks. WCBU reporter Joe Deacon talks with DeHaan about the recent trends with gas prices and what summertime travelers can expect at the pumps over the next few months. Well, in lead up to Memorial Day, gas prices have been inching down. Uh, in fact, Peoria now at about three fifty nine. That is uh, about thirty cents lower than where we were a month ago when prices averaged three eighty seven a gallon. A lot of that had to do with the summer switchover that took place and refineries that were doing maintenance. Compared to a year ago, prices uh, last year four eighty three a gallon going into Memorial Day weekend. So, you know, we're uh, almost a dollar twenty five cents below last year. Uh, it's a trend that should continue through much of the summer. Of course, last year we saw the national average hit over $5 a gallon. Um, it's not impossible that if a hurricane or refinery disruption impacts us later this summer, uh, we certainly could see the $4 a gallon mark, but I think that's really the only way we'll see it uh, is if we see some sort of abnormal situation that's unpredictable. I think barring that, uh, summer gas prices should probably settle uh, somewhere between the mid and upper $3 range, so not too dissimilar compared to where we are today. As you said, the average in Peoria area is around 360-ish. I see some stations, though, that are just a tick below $4. What are the factors that contribute to a wide range of gas prices, and why is it possible to see such a wide variance? Different suppliers, uh, different people that hauling that gasoline may have uh, different costs. That is, you know, if you um, basically have a wholesaler deliver your gasoline, there may be a middleman that charges you uh, several cents a gallon. Depending on the station and where they buy from, who supplies that gasoline, there could be a wholesale difference of anywhere from 5 to 15 cents a gallon as well. Some stations have long-term contracts. They may have rebates that essentially they reflect uh, a lower price. But it also is a, a big thing is about timing. 
uh, simply the day of the week that a station's buying gasoline can cause a fluctuation of anywhere from 20 to 30 cents. Some of these stations may be less competitive, meaning that they don't really care to match lower prices near them. Uh, if people are still filling their tanks up at a higher price, gas stations don't have much incentive to lower the price. So there's a lot of factors, but a lot of it comes down to simply competition. Some stations more competitive than others. What kind of impact could come from OPEC potentially deciding to reduce oil production? Well, we've seen OPEC already cutting oil production in the last couple of months. If they continue to further cut it, that could have a negative impact on the price of oil, sending it higher, and that could impact gas prices. Uh, especially as we're in a bit of an economic slowdown, that has reduced demand for oil and gasoline. That's part of the reason why even OPEC's decision a couple of months ago hasn't really impacted prices yet, because the decrease in production from OPEC has been outpaced by a drop in U.S. gasoline demand as the economy slows down and the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates. So uh, if OPEC does continue to lower oil output, though, uh, there will likely come a point that that will have a negative uh, impact on gasoline prices and perhaps to a more significant degree. What should drivers know as they make travel plans for the Memorial Day weekend and as the summer progresses? Well, all in all, uh, it's going to be a much more affordable summer filling your tank. There are some events that pose upside risk to gas prices. Now, there's a lot of possibilities when it comes to the direction of the economy with debt ceiling conversations ongoing. That could have a significant impact on prices if there's no debt ceiling deal. And if we default, that could push us into a recession, which could push prices down. If there is a debt ceiling deal in time, that could also do the opposite, uh, push the economy back to growth uh, and potentially mean higher demand and higher prices. So uh, as goes the economy, as go gas prices, if it's bad news for the economy, it's generally good news at the pump prices go down. Whereas if it's good news for the economy, it's generally bad news for gas prices, which go up. Have we seen a rise in travel over the past several months? And do you think there'll be potentially a rise in travel as we go beyond into the summer? Gasoline demand has been fairly soft this year. I think a lot of the economic uncertainty has played out in Americans filling their tanks up. Now, there is a bit more optimism. Consumers uh, that responded to our summer travel survey, 64% of them said that they're going to take at least one long road trip this summer. That's up six percentage points from last year. But highlighting the economic uncertainty of that group that said they're hitting the road, 60% of them have yet to make solid plans on doing so by booking accommodations or other plans. So Americans want to hit the road, but I think there's this uh, anxiety over the state of the U.S. economy. If they're hitting the road, are there certain areas that people are going to find even more relief at the gas pump? Well, we generally see some of the lowest gas prices the further south you go into the Gulf Coast. That's because there's many refineries in the Gulf Coast and there's lower gasoline taxes. Illinois, on the other hand, tends to be the most expensive state in the Great Lakes because of higher gasoline taxes. So uh, while the Gulf Coast is the cheapest area, the low price Mecca, uh, the West Coast is where you're going to find gas prices well in excess of $4 a gallon. That's fuel market expert Patrick DeHaan talking to WCBU's Joe Deacon about Memorial Day travel and summer gas prices. To hear the full conversation, go to WCBU.org. You're listening to All Things Peoria on WCBU 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope. 
In June, the U.S. Supreme Court is expected to ban the consideration of race in college admissions. The ruling would hinder highly selective universities that are trying to make their traditionally white and wealthy campuses more racially inclusive. And it may force them to take a hard look at policies working against this goal, like giving preference to family members of alumni. Lisa Phillip reports. Every year, thousands of applicants with stellar GPAs and long lists of extracurriculars vie for a limited number of seats at the University of Chicago and Northwestern. James Murphy is a fair admissions advocate with the nonprofit Education Reform Now. They get a huge pile of students, a huge pile of applications, and for sure a bunch of them can be just swept out. Like it's like, no, like there's you're not you're not in consideration, you're not in contention. But there's still you know, for every spot, probably like five, six, seven students who could fill that spot. So once they get past academic qualifications, Murphy says, admissions officers look at other traits to differentiate applicants, like a student's race or whether they are related to an alumnus. The latter is known as legacy status. Critics say it unfairly restricts access to schools that educate some of society's most influential decision makers. There are these tips or tiebreakers that push you into a category, right? In the, in the same way, like once you're in this pool of hyper-competitive, super-qualified students, any one little thing can make all the difference in the world. Data reported by U Chicago and Northwestern show the universities give as much consideration to legacy status as they do to race, but neither is weighed as heavily as academics or extracurriculars. It doesn't come down to like, are people who aren't qualified getting in through legacy? It's is legacy a good way to break a tie, right? Is legacy a good way to decide between two incredibly qualified, super talented students? Murphy doesn't think so. And more and more university leaders seem to agree with him. Over 100 selective institutions have ended their legacy admissions policies in recent years. Murphy says others may feel increasing pressure to do so after the Supreme Court rules on race conscious admissions this June. The justices are expected to bar universities from considering race when selecting students. Murphy says that may force tough conversations among university leaders. We're not allowed to do that. We're not going to consider that anymore. But we'll still consider where your mommy or daddy went to college, right? Um, we'll still give this birthright advantage to people. That just seems to me an impossible position for any ethical institution to, to hold. Top officials at Northwestern and U Chicago declined to comment for this story. Leaders at other selective universities have defended legacy admissions as a way to maintain and build community among their graduates. Alex Seaskin thinks they're motivated to hold on to it because of a desire to keep alumni close. Seaskin leads an education research group based at U Chicago and wrote an op-ed opposing the policy. Let's create generations of students and, you know, build families that are connected to the university. And I think there's uh, an assumption that those types of connections, you know, yield or lead to donations. University presidents and trustees may also fear backlash from alumni who want to build their family's connection to their alma mater and want their children to receive special consideration. UChicago student Alana Nee says that was the case for her dad. He went to U Chicago years ago and hoped his daughter would go there too. He had a great time in Chicago and wanted what was best for me. He really believes in U Chicago as an institution. As Nee got closer to applying, her dad donated more money to the school. She was admitted last year. Even though she may have benefited from legacy admissions, 
and is aware of the financial and academic motivations behind it, she doesn't support it. The main argument I've heard for legacies is that, you know, kids who are legacies are more suited for the university from just like a value standpoint or like care more about the university or like, you know, are willing to put more work like some or something about values and stuff like that. But if that's true, he says that should show through your application and the end result should be the same. Historians say legacy admissions began about 100 years ago. Jewish and immigrant students had started applying in larger numbers to Ivy League colleges. Leaders at those institutions wanted to keep their student bodies white and wealthy. Giving preference to applicants related to alumni did just that. Some, like Seaskin, say it still does. By design, it's meant to keep the students at an institution as static because it's trying to draw explicit connections between generations of students that go back to times when there were more explicit policies about who could and who couldn't access selective colleges. Universities are not required to report the number or demographics of legacy students they admit. But data made public in a lawsuit against Harvard reveal the disparities the policy can perpetuate. That school's most academically accomplished legacy applicants were more than twice as likely to get in than equally accomplished peers from low-income families. If we care about closing the racial wealth gap, then we have to look at who is admitted to our most selective higher education institutions. Because getting access to those institutions is the most, uh, you know, is the clearest pathway we have in our society to becoming wealthy. In recent years, UChicago and Northwestern have boasted of their efforts to make their universities more inclusive and equitable, including large increases to need-based financial aid. But both schools have seen their share of Black students grow only minimally to 6%. Seaskin doesn't blame legacy admissions entirely, but he says it certainly doesn't help. He wonders why UChicago and Northwestern have held on to the policy while other selective universities have dropped it. The question for both of these presidents is, uh, you know, do you want to lead or do you want to follow? If they truly want to make equity and inclusion a priority, he says, ending legacy admissions should be their first step. That was Lisa Phillip reporting. You're listening to All Things Peoria on WCBU 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz today. On this week's episode of Out and About, Dr. May Gilliland-Wright of Arts Partners of Central Illinois talks with actress Michelle Watson and choreographer Jennifer Morris about Cornstalk Theater's upcoming production of Sister Act, taking place June 2nd through the 10th. When disco diva Dolores Van Cartier witnesses a murder, she's put in protective custody in the one place the cops are sure she won't be found, a convent. For tickets and more information, head to cornstalktheater.org. Michelle, Jennifer, welcome to Out and About. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Jennifer, Sister Act came out in 1992, one of the most financially successful comedies of the early 1990s. It spawned a franchise, including this musical adaptation in 2006. How is the musical different from the movie? Does it follow the same story? 
It's pretty true to the story itself. However, they've made a few changes. For instance, instead of setting it in modern day or in the 90s, they've chosen to set it in the 70s. So it really lends itself to a fun, upbeat 70s type score. So a few disco vibes, if you will. Also, it, some of the songs are different because the Motown music that was used in the movie um, was not able to be licensed for this theatrical production, probably due to cost. So <laughs> the songs are different, but they are just as much fun. Well, Michelle, you portray Dolores. Yes. In the movie, your character is played by the one and only Whoopi Goldberg. The director of this local production, Jimmy Ulbricht, said that Goldberg herself would be proud of the way you portray Dolores what is it like to step into such an iconic and memorable role? Well, for one, I love Whippy Goldberg, and I love Sister Act, and this character here that's playing Dolores Van Cartier is just a little bit more, um, she's hungry to be able to be successful. And I really enjoy playing her because it's, totally not me. It is totally <laughs> not me. I always like playing characters that are different from me and being able to step in to see what I can do and bring out for that character. So right now I'm having fun playing her because she is just a true, very transparent person. <laughs> and is it similar to the movie where she finds herself in a convent, but I, I understand in this production she's more of a, a disco sort of queen. Yeah, she's kind of like a disco queen. I guess they're trying to portray her as kind of like the Donna Summer, which she has a very big thing for Donna Summer, sequence dresses and fur and, and things like that. So it's going to be really fun playing that type of character, again, being that I am a pastor's wife, you know, <laughs> and being able to um, see where Dolores is and where she's going. Hmm. Well, Jennifer, this has to be such a fun production to choreograph. What kind of musical numbers can we expect? Are there big dance numbers? There definitely are. We have 19 nuns in the show, and the big dance numbers, all of the nuns are in them. There's even some dance numbers that include the entire company. So you really are going to see the stage filled, and not only will you see everyone dancing, the sound is going to be great with all of those voices under the tent. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Out and About on WCBU, part of the NPR Network. I'm May Gilliland Wright of Arts Partners of Central Illinois, and today I'm talking with actress Michelle Watson and choreographer Jennifer Morris about Cornstock Theater's upcoming production of Sister Act. Michelle, the cast for this production is wonderfully diverse in so many ways. Barb Corey portrays Mother Superior. Uh, Michael Hurd and Sam Hardiman also take the stage. Tell me a bit more about who you'll be sharing scenes with. I'll be sharing scenes with actually both of them. Um, Michael Hurd, of course, plays Eddie, who had a childhood sweetheart crush on Dolores when she was in high school. And then Curtis, of course, is the married lover um, <laughs> that she gets entangled with. Michelle, what was the most challenging part in taking on this role? And what was the most rewarding? Well, the most challenging, of course, is this amazing choreography that is being done. <laughs> um, it has more selections and songs that I've ever done before in any production that I've ever been a part of. Um, and again, I have to, again, reflect back to the character. It's going to be kind of strange for me to use some of the things that are being said, you know, not, I want people to separate me from the character, know that this is just a part that I'm playing, this is not what I do on an everyday situation and stuff, you know, but I want people to come out and just enjoy the show and see that, hey, I didn't know she could do that, she, you know, she was pretty talented in that, and that's what I want people to see that I'm capable of doing something like that, and again, with it being rewarding is that, you know, even when I went to go audition, I didn't really expect 
expect to really actually get the part. I was I would have been glad to have been a part of the ensemble and just to be able to portray such a character, you know, even though Whoopi did it in the movie version, you know, and I've even watched and learned through the YouTube version, you know, how she portrayed the character to kind of incorporate both of those characters into one. And hopefully everybody will be able to see both Whoopi and the young lady who played in the Broadway version. So I find that very rewarding. Jennifer, I'd love for our listeners to learn a little bit more about the experience of seeing a production at Cornstalk versus a traditional stage. What is it like for you and for the audience? Well, the things that make Cornstalk very unique is it's set up in the three-quarter round. So instead of just staring at the stage from afar, you are audience is seated on three sides and very up close and personal with the actors. So instead of watching everything from a distance, you get to see a lot more expression on the actors' faces. You get to see details on the costume. It seems very immersive in that regard. But the same thing that makes it so unique to the patrons makes it challenging for a choreographer because you have to consider what the view is going to be for patrons on three quarters of the way around the stage. So it it does present some challenges, but in the end, I feel like most choreographers come away having more unique choreography because of the challenges that are presented. Sounds like it. Finally, Jennifer, there will be some food vendors there. Is that correct? It's a, it's a whole evening. Yeah, you can really make a great summer evening from coming to Cornstalk. There are food vendors that will be available before each production if you would like to come and get dinner. But also, if you want to just come and relax, we have Young's Popcorn Heaven, who will be present every night. And also, uh, Catering Peoria will be selling beer and wine. So you really can come out, relax, grab a bite to eat, have a drink, and enjoy a nice summer evening under the tent. Sounds perfect. That was actress Michelle Watson and choreographer Jennifer Morris talking about Cornstalk Theater's upcoming production of Sister Act taking place June 2nd through the 10th. Find more information at cornstalktheater.org. Michelle, Jennifer, thanks so much for joining me in the studio today. Thanks Thank for you, May. And in the studio next week, Dr. John Jost joins to talk about the Peoria Bach Festival. I'm looking forward to that conversation and hope you'll join me right here on WCBU and WCBU.org. And while you're out and about this weekend, see Live at the Five Spot at the Contemporary Arts Center featuring Preston Jackson and John Miller. Using vintage guitars, they will cover Duke Ellington, Ray Charles, Hank Williams, and more to create an atmosphere as relaxing as if it were your own living room. Also this weekend, see artist Kathy Crawford's solo exhibition, Luminous Layers, at Exhibit A Gallery in Peoria Heights. Experience Crawford's breathtaking color reduction woodcut prints and shop for other local artwork while there. For more information on these and all other arts events, visit artspartners.net. You've been listening to Out and About, a production of WCBU and Arts Partners of Central Illinois. Each week, Out and About connects you to the arts community by talking to local arts leaders, artists, and performers. And you can hear it every week here on All Things Peoria. Support for arts and culture programming on WCBU comes from PNC Financial Services. We're focusing on giving back as part of an ongoing commitment to the community PNC serves. And that's all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Colin Shope. Thanks for listening. Story help today came from Joe Deacon, Lisa Phillip, and Dr. May Gilliland-Wright. Holden Kellogg produced this episode of All Things Peoria, which is made possible in part by the General Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. For more information on all of these stories, head to wcbu.org. And of course, you can also subscribe to All Things Peoria podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. And we do want to know what you think of the show. Let us know by commenting on our Facebook page, We're Peoria Public Radio, or follow us on Instagram at WCBU Radio. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org, Peoria Public Radio, a part of the NPR Network.